We'd like to extend our sympathies to Bill Belichick and Ivanka Trump, who both now know the pain of letting Tom Brady get away. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Ruthless. Democrats are set to take control of the U.S. Senate, House, and the White House. This will go down as one of the most progressive administrations in American history. God willing, everything is on the table. You now can pass things without a filibuster threat. That's right. Oh, you'll regret this, and you may regret it a lot sooner than you think. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Was that too much? I, I mean, listen, it's a good joke. Jared's not going to be happy. He's a friend of the program. I mean, the, well, listen, I mean, in a just world, he would have the Nobel Prize. The man brought the man, made, the man made world peace. And here we are making fun of him on the podcast. We're not making fun. I mean, the, listen, given the choice between the two, I don't know, man. I might take <laughs> I, it's fair. It's fair. He's got seven rings can... now. Seven rings. Wait, wait, hold on. I, I want to make sure I know what you're talking about. Given the choice between the two. Jared and Tom Brady or the Nobel Prize and the Lombardi Trophy? What are we talking about? We're just talking about like, you know, comparing a Nobel Prize to, you know, Lombardi trophies and rings because, man, I mean, there's no better hardware than a Super Bowl ring, let me tell you. (laughs) You're being disrespectful. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's tough, man. Tom Brady, shit, how do you compete with that? Well, I will say, look. Quite literally, how the fuck do you compete against that guy? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I can't. I mean, when, when Mahomes can't pull it off, it's like, man. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Well, it's a good joke. Here we are in the Ruthless Variety program. I want to thank all of you, which I think we set download records for the special. We last did. Week. We did. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the support of this community is, you know, words can't convey how grateful we are for that. It just the, the numbers are brilliant. We're we're so happy. Everyone seems to have loved that special. It was it was, it was a ball. I, mean, I love a- I love doing it. I love yeah. doing it. That yeah. Eric Hirschman guy is an absolute king. Like <laughs> absolute king. You like, had some killer lines in there. Oh, gosh, it was lines. so much fun to play him because, like, you know, we we've obviously given a lot of shit to the Trump lawyers who were working on the election, but man, he had some real good lawyers on the other side in the white house that's for sure yeah so good so good and i thought i felt like the entire cast and crew really brought a game the sydney powell uh, amanda's sydney powell was top notch uh smash on the narration oh was just, yeah uh, you can't how, how do we get it. grammy nominated because honestly those two man i don't know probably, it's probably fixed it's probably like, fixed it's probably like <laughs> probably like the nobel <laughs> The man brought peace to the Middle East, folks. So um, this is a big episode. And one of the reasons it's a big episode is we have Governor Brian Kemp on. And I know the uh, listeners have been in various states of anxiety about Governor Kemp, about Georgia, about the presidential election, about the two Senate races. Well, me too. I mean, you remember when you said, hey, uh, you know, guess who wants to be on the show? I was like, huh. Well, I mean, he's got a lot of answers or he's got a lot of questions that we need answers for, you know? which, is, which is precisely why we wanted him on. And um, he knew to his great credit, he knew that this was not going to be a what's your favorite pie? And, yeah. you know, do you have a golden retriever type interview? He knew we were going to ask him real questions. He wanted his side of the story out. 
I wanted to know about the election procedures, the different election procedures that were put in place and whether or not he was comfortable with that going into the election. He had some very interesting things to say about that. He broke some news. And then I think he broke some news on what he wants to do about it. Um, so I'll let you all be, be your own, uh, you know, best uh, determiner of the content there. But I, I, I was happy that we did the interview. I'm happy that Governor Kemp was as candid as he was. And I thank him for coming on the program. It's not easy to walk in the lion's den. Yeah. I give him credit for that, for sure. You know, and, and, and do that. But he did. But he did. And and look, this guy's standing for election. You know, you, you look at all the never Trumpers, which is not Kemp, my, I, I might add. This guy is, he makes it very clear. He is not a never Trump politician. But if you look at the difference between how never Trump politicians handle themselves and people like this, is never, never Trumpers, they always retire and go away and complain from like, you know, the seats in higher education or on mm-hmm. some cable news channel. Mm-hmm. And they, and they, they're just weak, right? This guy standing for reelection, he wants to litigate all of this in public and make his arguments. So I give him credit. Yeah. You know, that absolutely. That's a great point. You know, the fact that he came on here where the grassroots listens, where the movers and shakers listen, and, and he, he wanted to enter the lion's den instead of having an op-ed and WAPO or something where, I mean, that'd be the politician thing to do. So I got to give him kudos. He showed up here. Totally. Totally. So anyway, we've got a great program. Uh, Another excellent variety program, I might <laughs> add. We got some, we got some good, good content today. What do we got first? So the first thing that we want to get into, because I had a lot of minions show up in my DMs on Friday when the story broke, was a time story that basically mm. outlined you know, I mean, a casual reading would would say that this was like somewhere between a coup and a hostile takeover that aligned both business folks and special interest leftist folks in this grand scheme yeah. to sort of deprive the the American voters of their ability to choose a president last November. And the thing was, you know, clickbait central. Uh, in my personal view, it was absolute bullshit, a, a complete press release to, uh, the, the funders of leftist thought. Um, but I want to get into why, because there are really smart conservatives, including the showed up on cable news. They were genuinely fearful of this article that we were talking about and, and whether or not there is this little cabal of insiders. The, the story was called The Secret History of the Shadow Campaign That Saved the 2020 Election. So you understand Whoa, their anxiety. That's a title. Holy you, shit. You understand their anxiety. But um, ultimately, when you get into it, and you actually know the players and you know the organizations that are claiming to have played a big role here. I mean... Duncan, help me explain. Yeah, I, uh, I, I mean, before Duncan started, I was I was concerned. I, I had it sent to me as well, and then when Duncan broke it down for me, I was like, "That makes sense." Could you please do it on the pod? So, without further ado, yeah, just 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 to give everyone a look under the hood here at articles like this. When you get an article like this, that is just like a tongue bath for a bunch <laughs> of. 
special interest groups and nonprofits, go ahead and scroll to the first on the record comment. Um, that's the group that pitched the story. Okay. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Can I, can I pause you for that? Yeah. A tongue, a tongue bath. Yeah. Okay. Okay. No, I've got a really good visual representation of what you're talking about. Thank you. And, uh, and so, I mean, look, there, there are a lot of these groups, um, that, you know, that founder of eBay, Pierre Omidyar, whatever his name is, funds a lot of these groups that are basically, um, you know, quote unquote, uh, democracy, you know, groups trying to, you know, protect our elections. In reality, they're just left wing advocacy groups that find never Trump Republicans to um, basically rent their reputation, um, you know, to act like they're a bipartisan organization right and these groups don't actually do shit (laughs) let's be honest they have no clout they have no authority they couldn't run any conspiracy to wipe their own ass um (laughs) let alone control an entire national presidential election i mean that's the thing is if you actually staged a coup you wouldn't write how you did it in time magazine right right that's (laughs) the thing What, what, what this is guys And I hope everyone who listens to this program who's concerned about this, and I understand why you would be, this is this is this is a grant proposal. This is how you get your funding renewed for the next fiscal year. Okay, none of this shit's real. Like Pierre, listen, we know the election's over, but there's still a lot we can do. Like, please keep the checks rolling. So this is this is my favorite part that I want to pull out for discussion because I know a lot about some of these players. There was a, I'm quoting now, there was a conspiracy unfolding behind the scenes, one that both curtailed the protests, coordinated the resistance from CEOs. Both surprises were the result of an informal alliance between left-wing activists and business titans. The pact was formalized in a terse, little-noticed joint statement of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the AFL-CIO published on Election Day. Now, look, I'm, I'm concerned with, seeing those two working on the same side. Let me tell you well, what happened to that chamber. I mean, for those of us, if, if you know, you know, right? The, the, the idea that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce represents any constituency within the Republican Party, let alone the entirety of the conservative universe is the most laughable fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. Like it literally go off. It's, 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 this is a power structure that does not exist in reality. There Mm -hmm. is nobody taking instruction from the U S chamber of commerce on how to handle an election ever. Right. The theory, the theory of this being that, you know, there was some, you know, pro-Trump um, activist in Michigan who, you know, his entire media consumption is is Fox and great programs like Ruthless. Yeah. And what 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 <laughs> what happened is he got a press release from Tim Donahue at the at the U.S. Chamber and was like, I oh, can't protest. It's Tom. It's Tom. It's Tom. Tom excuse me. Excuse me, Tom. Uh, that's absurd. It perfectly illustrates the point, though. I mean, I didn't do that on purpose, guys. 
But but here's the thing. Like my wife worked for the U.S. Chamber at the height of their powers when they were fighting the Obamacare and all the excesses of government under the Obama administration. And like, yeah, they had a big currency within Republican politics at the time. They, they've certainly sold that and then some. But even then, even then, the idea that that group had power over grassroots conservatives. That's something. I mean, come on. It's That's just, the stretch. Well, now I think it's now I think it's real homes, you know, now now because your wife's just part of the conspiracy. <laughs> wow. Deep state strikes again. Wow. Deep state revealed. <laughs> she will be very surprised to find that out. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, 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 look. Here's the thing. There, there's obviously some accusations in here that are important. And, and, and but I don't want us to lose sight of what's real here. Here are some things that are that are real. Okay. Um, number one, I don't, you guys may have seen this news uh, a couple of weeks ago, but there was this alt-right Twitter troll guy, this Ricky Vaughn, who is facing like 10 years in jail for making memes. Um, yeah, like, that, like, I saw that. That was pretty fucking shocking. Like vote by text memes. And like, I don't really want to defend the guy, but you know who's not in jail? Reed Hoffman or any of his associates. And if you guys don't know who Reed Hoffman is, no, you need to explain and you need to particularly explain the Yeah, Please do. Please do. Please do. Yeah. So Reed Hoffman was founder of of LinkedIn and he runs a couple of um, left wing causes. Uh, But he also funded a Russian Russian style troll bot operation in the Alabama special election where these left wing groups basically created all of these bots and then pitched a bunch of stories that Roy Moore um, was being controlled by Russia and it was totally fake, an entirely fake false flag operation uh, to try to steal the election. And none of those people are in jail. But this or, shit or poster, in- Ricky Vaughn, might go to prison for 10 years. Yeah, that's and, really and, wild. And to be clear, like, we're certainly not going to defend this dude and, and what he is posting. And my understanding is he's like a white supremacist or something, which I, I've personally and I know everybody on this show hates uh the, the the full aspect of that and that's real that's not like us just saying that or the media saying that like he, he's got he's got problems but the Ill point that you're illustrating duncan is a is is well said because that is a problem we're talking about people who have structurally interfered with misinformation in american mm-hmm. elections and they pay zero price for it in a, in a funded, well-coordinated way. Right. This is right. not some guy on Twitter. And they bragged about it. They bragged about it. There hasn't been any investigation. We didn't have a special counsel. It was just allowed to happen. Here's a direct quote from the New York Times article. We orchestrated an elaborate false flag operation that planted the idea that the Moore campaign was amplified on social media by a Russian botnet. <laughs> Fake. They made it up. They just wow. said it. Right. They just said it. I mean, the, the problem, and I think, you know, one of you... It's like the Russian collusion was coming from inside the building. <laughs> yeah, it, it, right. There you yeah. go. <laughs> well, it, it, it was, Smug. It was. It, it, it was the Russian collusion, as we now know, was a Democratic opposition research plan within the Hillary Clinton campaign that was passed forward through J- Department of Justice officials to the FBI. It was, it was like Hillary and Nero, uh, you know, once 
the day after the election when they realized it was over, all of Nira's years of, of, of kissing Hillary's ass, hoping she'd be president someday, worthless. They had to concoct a plan for how they could have lost. Me- and, and they decided it's Russia. And Dude. Nero, by the way, has been nominated by Biden to a post. So <laughs> let me just say, uh, just so we can stay on the air, uh, uh, zero implications thus far that Nira was the one that uh, transported all of this, but she's a terrible person who should vote <laughs> against her anyway. Yes, that is all true. The other thing is, is like, you know, we shouldn't just cry over spilled milk here. We need to prepare for what the future looks like and go on offense because, yeah, you know, a lot of the stuff that we saw, and I'm sure you'll get into it with Governor uh, Kemp in the interview, uh, but there's some other important stuff coming up here. I mean, the, the Democrats in the Senate um, are going to be bringing up um, a quote unquote voting rights act. What, what is it that they're calling it? Well, it's the John Lewis. I think they call the John Lewis. Right, 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 right. And their their plan here is uh, to stuff um, a lot of like left wing schemes into this so-called Voting Rights Act. Um, And when they can't pass it, then they say, oh, well, you know that, you know, Republicans are against democracy. So we have to blow up the filibuster. Like, I can't believe Republicans hate John Lewis. Yeah, they're they're against civil rights. They are attacking the memory. Right, right. They're going to be using... Um, <laughs> the uh, Jim Crow filibuster to stop this Voting Rights Act. So we got to blow amazing. it up, right? That's what they're going to say. We all know it. The writing's on the wall. It's coming. Right. But the, what they don't tell you is in this Voting Rights Act they want to pass is, you know, basically two things, uh, federalizing state elections, um, and they want to make it harder for Republicans to do redistricting in all of these states they just won. Yep. Well, it's, oh, it's, there's polit- it's completely shameless politics. It is. And, you know, it, the thing is, and, and we brought this up in the post-election period about how happy we were that Republicans were finally focused on, on voting infrastructure, because there's only been a few, and I, I'm going to talk deeply with Kemp about this, but there's only been a few people that are actually plugged in to how Democrats are attempting to rig the system and have been for years. They had a huge opportunity in a lot of states because of COVID to implement mandatory mail-ins and things like that. What you're seeing with this voting rights bill, which is you're exactly right. They would like us to stay focused on Time Magazine of a bunch of fail sons sitting on K Street, passing paper behind, you know, to one another, pretending right. that they're making right. a difference. Like right. that's bullshit. Right. You, exactly. It's bull that, that none of that exists. What actually exists is a bill called the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which sounds terrific. Yeah. But in actuality contains things like vote harvesting nationwide. Right? Redistricting that that automatically disadvantages Republican candidates in states where there are Republican governance, right? Uh, I talked about this with Kent. We're talking about things like mailing out ballots to every voter, right? And then going out and attempting to, to harvest those ballots. I mean, this is, this is the core of what Democrats are trying to accomplish, which is stealing of, of votes. That is, this is not ultimately 
what determined the 2020 election by any stretch of the imagination. It's not. And, and we talk about this with Kemp today, but it is what they have in mind. And, and that's, we, that's it. That's it. We got to keep our eye on the ball and don't get distracted by bullshit in time magazine. Cause like you said, uh, if you were doing a conspiracy to steal the election, uh, you wouldn't write about it in time. Bingo. <laughs> Bingo. hundred yeah. percent. So um, let's transfer quickly to a game show. The folks Ooh. love the game shows because can I get a moderate Jeff to give us the music, please? Let's go. Okay. So coming out of this, Duncan, listen, um, there's a lot of controversy about your ruling. Um, I think the people feel like I had a stronger candidate with Max boot last week. Mm. Let me just say, I'm going to be the first one um, to concede here. And then I think Jennifer Rubin is actually the king of the hill, which is what we're calling this game, king of the hill. And I, I don't want a technicality win. I, I feel like if we're going to dethrone smugs Jennifer Rubin, it needs to be on a straight knockout. I can't- That's a competitor, folks. That's a competitor. I can appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. So- I'm going to keep at this and I'm going to, I'm going to bring everybody. I told everybody last week that I, I was really hoping that I had arrested and, and ready Anna Navarro. Oh yeah. bringing in a ringer. That's, that's solid. Wow. And if you recall that the rules of this game are to find uh, never Trump quote unquote journos that are opinion journos who cast themselves as conservatives, but ultimately are like left-wing lunatics. And uh, we, we take the tweets over the last seven days, the hottest takes, best two out of three. And it's very, very difficult to be Jennifer Rubin. I think I might have Anna Navarro this week. Fantastic. Ready. I'm ready. I, I brought the goods. Do you, so, think I need, so, do you think I need to explain who Anna Navarro is? Yeah, yes, you yeah absolutely might should. as well. You absolutely should. So Anna Navarro, as best I can tell, is somebody who's called herself a Republican and never actually done anything in Republican politics, but she shows up on CNN as a regular contributor to espouse a conservative point of view that is inevitably just anti-Republican. That's just like the greatest grift in town. I know know we give the Lincoln Project people (laughs) a lot of shit on this podcast, but like the oldest grift in politics is a Republican who hates on other Republicans on cable news. It really is. I mean, it's permanent employment. (laughs) And and I want to say for the folks at home who are fortunate enough not to know who Jen Rubin is, she is uh, a, quote, American political commentator who writes opinion columns for The Washington Post. She's just, you know, a mouthpiece for the never Trump out of their mind, worm eaten brain take community. She was she was like establishment Republican for years and years and years. It's so wild. And then and then then all of a sudden broke her brain. (laughs) Yeah, completely just shattered. (laughs) <laughs> shattered <laughs> no but as the title holder smug you need yeah. to do two of the of the three to lead with because part of our strategy here is to try to match up which we think we can win in the eyes of the judge duncan yeah so i, I think it should be challenger goes first well you, i don't you, think you, i mean you, you, you have want to the do title two. you have to drop the first card why don't we well let, but you have to do duncan. two out of the three you have to do two of the three those okay. are the rules as as king of the hill Okay. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, 
here's how, here's how I'm going to play it. First tweet. This is from February 7th. It says, if Americans are hungry for big government action and look askance at ours extremism and obstructionism, ours have severely misinterpreted the public mood. Biden's instinct to move quickly and boldly, despite a lack of GOP support in despite a lack of GOP support in May, prove prescient. I read that correctly. So, so hold on. First of all, do we need hooked on phonics? No, a, uh, dude, she, <laughs> this, this is a lot of, of words that shouldn't go together. Is this a tweet or is this an this essay? Is, this is a tweet. And this is, dude, uh, listen, a lot of these words don't follow like subject, verb, direct object <laughs> order. And it's, you know, it's Jen Rubin. But the thing is, uh, you know, typically you think someone's hammered, but this is a 1029 a.m. Damn. I feel like that. And I I'm not going like to make that. any insinuations if she's like raging at 1029. And, and I wouldn't even judge if she's raging at 1029. I feel like. Either she shit faced or that last bourbon you had had a geez, that people call it. The, the last bourbon you had had a had a, a literacy pill in it. No, I, I'm telling you, like I read this word for word. So let's let's word for let's, word. Let's, 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 let's hear it again. Sense. Let's let's sure. hear it again again clarify. and slower and let's just all enjoy it. If Americans are hungry for big government action and look askance at ours extremism and obstructionism ours have severely misinterpreted the public mood biden's instinct to move quickly and boldly despite a lack of gop support in may prove prescient and i do quote in may prove prescient jesus you're right that's terrible wow. <laughs> holy shit i have to comp- <sighs> there's a part there's a time when like the worms have eaten your brain so completely i think they're getting to the parts are like motor function where like like, no, I think you're right. <laughs> you know, and the thing is, is what I'm playing on, and I know you're doing by picking that tweet, is you're working the judge a little bit to see <laughs> how much like sentence structure illiteracy yeah. can ultimately advantage you. I mean, the whole the whole tweet is a mess. I mean, it's just a mess. <sighs> but I mean, you look at the underlying ideas that I think she's trying to convey is that. Uh, the answer for big government action is uh, Joe Biden somehow. Um, that's really interesting take. Beyond okay. the like worms right. eating I'm, I'm, I'm the gonna, brain to where so, her motor functions aren't working. So you've chosen a legislative action tweet. I think I've got an answer. All right, let's hear it. Okay. This is Anna Navarro. Thank you, POTUS for signing an executive order C comma into the reunification of families separated at the border. He called it a quote, moral and national shame, unquote, a quote, stain on our reputation, unquote. My heart aches for these families. I so hope they can be reunited and overcome the trauma. Folks, what I have here is a sentence structure problem. It's a normal tweet, 100% normal tweet. Don't I, you I, know it. It's a normal tweet. I have a sentence structure problem, but more importantly, I have a tweet thanking President Biden <laughs> for reuniting families on the same day that they announced <laughs> that they're opening up overflow facilities. 
for children in cages. They're not super cages, folks. They are overflow facilities. The brilliance, the brilliance of landing that at the same time cannot go discounted. I like my chance. So, so what, what Holmes has really narrowed in on here, he, 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 knows, he knows his strategy now. Because if you go by strictly a textual reading of the tweet, you miss out on all the context. The original intent at the time said tweet was tweeted. And as judge and jury, that's very important. Very important. Very important. Uh, that's how I lost. That's how I right? lost last time. I'm giving it to Holmes. Wow. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. Okay. Let me take two. And I... I, I I hope that was your worst Anna Navarro because Ruben's really bringing the thunder. Okay. On these next all right. Well, listen, I got one zero lead, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I think you had a one zero lead last time. I did. Ooh. I did. But you know what? I've learned a little something about the judge and jury. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> so I think, I think Anna could topple. Um, here we go. She has uh, quote tweeted a briefing about how Biden is barring Trump from receiving intelligence briefings citing erratic behavior. Oh, comma. Just give Trump an empty binder marked classified briefing. Guy will never read it. He'll never know the difference. So <clears throat> do you think that he read the binder on Soleimani? Do you, I mean, this is a standard dummy take. There's, there's nothing magical happening here. It's just a standard you, dummy take. You, oh, that's outrageous. That you, I'll let you finish up your case. because well, It's, it's outrageous that you denigrate a, <laughs> a dummy standard. This is, this is somebody who... Ultimately, operated four years of foreign policy, being the first president in generations not to start a war. As somebody who just didn't read their classified bright briefings, like by whose standard? And Navarro's? I think it's quality. I remember. Do, do you guys remember? I think it was was it Clapper or Brent? I think maybe it was Brennan. You remember when they they decided they were going to cut off Brennan from the briefings, getting classified in intel, yeah, uh, and like the whole world freaked out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then now yeah. they're totally cool with Biden doing it. Right, right, right. What, what do you got for me, Smug? Simple, short, and sweet. <clears throat> from February seventh, Harris Buttigieg, Judge, twenty twenty eight. That's her take. You know what, Smug? That's um, the tweet. You and reminder: out, if you, you want to talk you, about context, remember Mr. Holmes explained she was once, you know, a fixture of the Republican establishment scene, and how far the mighty have fallen. Harris Buttigieg, twenty twenty-eight. Not only that, Smug, but that tweet was retweeted by Ron Klain. Oh, shit, I'm going to lose this one, aren't I? 
and 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 that context is the reason why Smug wins this round. Yeah, I, that's I good context. Know. You're right. He's right. Okay, Smug. How are you going to put me away? Because I feel like I got I got something for you. Now this one, this one, I need folks, you know, at home, you know, to truly experience this tweet. It's from February first, five nineteen. It's a it's a photo. She's tweeted. It's of her dog out in the snow, looking like it wants to die. That's it. <laughs> the dog. It's like Beto's dog. If you had it outside freezing, with, with snow everywhere, and it's just looking into the distance. I mean, I can't tell you how sad this dog looks. Wait, hold I've on, put, is it just a tweet of a of a of a lonely dog of her lonely. And I was like, is this someone else's dog? Is this like a meme of like you know sad suicidal dog? Dog wants to die. Dot JPEG or something. No, it's her dog. There are many photos of this dog, and every photo, the dog is just like my every moment I live is agony. <laughs> Sweet. So no she words. let the dog out while it snowed on it. That, there are there are did. no words to this tweet. It, it, it's 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 her dog out in the snow. Where she left it to die. Oh wait, it says, "Will it be here in the morning?" I think that might be a reference what? to her dog. Yeah, what? will it be. That's the tweet. Will it be here in the morning? I think that's a. It's in reference to her dog. She's hoping it dies. <laughs> will it be here in the morning? It feels aggressive. That's an interesting choice. <laughs> that's a tough closer. I mean, how can he be a worse person than that? I feel like he's left a door open for me. If you can do something more egregious than leaving a dog out to die in the snow, <laughs> yeah, but but I guess we're gonna find out yeah, the judge and the jury whether they they have sort of an extracurricular view of how hot takes coming out of these people are bad. So I, listen, I feel like I've got a winner here in a Navarro, February two. AOC's harrowing description of the experiences inside the Capitol that day is a reminder that we can't forget or move on from the insurrection of January 6th until and unless there's accountability. Standard tweet. That's a standard tweet. There's nothing. A, she's a Republican. If you don't think it's worse to leave a dog to die in the snow than just a standard boilerplate AOC, blah, blah, blah. Come she on. Goes to that wasn't even that hot. AOC. That wasn't even that hot. She was in the cannon building. <laughs> you can't work the ref on this one. It's a clear cannon cut. Building. It's a clear cut <laughs> loss. You have to see the dog, folks. This mangy dog. This poor mangy I, dog. I think, I think the judge needs to review the evidence i haven't seen this tweet uh smug can you throw it in the slack for yeah, me yeah yeah here's the dog i think i have to go back to the judge's chambers and the, in the slack there it is look at this dog <laughs> look at that dog. <laughs> there's no there's nothing else this is just the picture there's there's there no wait there's no... let's see that should i'm gonna make a couple observations about the dog while we're at it the first off is um the dog is in close quarters there's no question about it there's not a lot of room to roam it's it's similar to an overflow facility that biden would place a child in it does appear like an overflow facility i will say that there is quite a bit of snow on the ground like not dc snow not like midwest snow there's like dc snow and the dog 
It, okay, Michael Vick, what's the acceptable level of, well, of leaving a dog to die? <laughs> this dog is not dying. This Look dog, at the dog. Look at that dog. This dog is standing on a porch getting ready to be fed kibble. I see that dog. I, I, I rescue it. It's coming home with me. We're, we're finding you, you know, a heated home even, and some food. Look at that. It's, it's all ribs and bones, this poor dog. It doesn't even have any snow on its back. I have rendered my decision. Yes. Um, Smug has routinely attacked Jonah Goldberg's dogs. Mm. <laughs> Calls them very oh, bad wow. dogs. Well, mm. Wow. And, and, and they are, and, they are very bad dogs. I and so I find it. And so Holmes, Holmes, you know, I find, uh, I find Smug's offense to be well, contrived. Don't shoot the messenger. Oh, D- oh, I, don't shoot I the think, messenger. I'm just I don't the messenger. Think, I don't think Smug cares about this dog. Wow. <laughs> Brutal accusations, folks. Whoa. I don't think Smug cares about this dog. And I think Holmes has defeated. What a wonderful wow. judge and jury. Wow. I'm stunned. Stunned. I will I, tell you. I think our judge has bowed to the pressure from, from some online folks. Wow. How dare you? <laughs> how dare you? How dare you? I, I feel like it was a well-reasoned, thoughtful presentation. Somebody who, who not only brought up the, the pictures as provided, but put them in the context of a history of tweets. Wow. You know, I stand, I stand, I stand, by, my, I stand by my statements. Thoughtful. Wow. So I, I think the, the tweet hell. speaks for itself. Uh, and I will, to my dying day... Proudly proclaim the truth that Jonah Goldberg has some very, very bad dogs. <laughs> Monstrous little beasts. <laughs> All right. So so last thing before we transition to our next. Um, this is going to go on next week. You're going to have to pick a new one to challenge Anna, Anna Navarro, Navarro as King of the Hill. Doable. Not going to be hard. Not going to be hard, folks. I was robbed this time, but you know what? I'm going to come back with some, with, with some real firepower. All right. Don't you worry. All right, uh, moderate Jeff, let's get the game show music. All right, lastly, we need to hit this because it's topical. We'll do it quickly before we get to this interview. Politico printed a story called Inside Biden World's Plan to Punish the GOP for Opposing COVID Relief. It caught my eye because I... We are three weeks into this administration. God, this is so ridiculous. You know, and, and like the one promise that these guys made is that they're tone setters. They're different. They're going to mm-hmm. be basically caretakers of our democracy. They're just going to try to bring everybody together. And here we are three weeks in and their entire legislative agenda has been reduced to a partisan fight. Yep. Entirely. It's about unity, folks. This is the unity administration. (laughs) So like a couple of things before I open it up. The first is everybody who's been involved in politics, who's had the opportunity to get in on the onset of a new administration. They know that the first hundred days is your first time to sort of capitalize on the, the, all of the political momentum that you had out of the election and ultimately cash in on some big change, right? Obama, 
they did Obamacare, mm-hmm. right? Bush, they did No Child Left Behind. They did energy policies. They did a whole bunch of different stuff. Um, you know, Clinton did stuff too. I mean, I, look, every single administration in history has used the first 100 days as their one opportunity to do something truly bipartisan. When these guys said that they were going to do COVID relief, I was like, first of all, that's a cop out because Trump and McConnell got COVID relief twice, three plus trillion dollars of relief with over 90 votes in the, in, in, in the United States Senate. So like, how difficult is it to get COVID relief? Right. These guys managed to figure out a way to make that a partisan exercise. And I'm not surprised. I'll tell you what, I am not surprised. You look at, you know, the actions speak louder than words. And these Biden folks convinced the journalists to just push the word unity. But what did you see coming out of the Dems and their operatives? They wanted their, you know, deep program conservatives. They wanted, what, what did they call it? This like commission to look into. Uh, yeah, yeah, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Like, holy. Get out of here. Holy moly. Yeah, their first their first act of bipartisanship is going to be to fucking blow up the filibuster and pack the Supreme Court. I don't buy it for a second. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I think everybody should go into this with their eyes wide open mm-hmm. that all that unity stuff is bullshit. They yep. don't give a shit about yep. unity at all. And here's the thing about this article, which I think is pretty incredible considering they haven't passed it yet. And where are those $2,000 checks? They they where kept the talking checks? about the $2,000 checks. They they haven't been able to do that. Where's the money, Lebowski? The right. $2,000 checks where Joe Biden was like, hey, listen, if you vote for me, if, if you if you get the Senate, we're, we're going to give you the $2,000 checks. Where are the checks, buddy? Where are the checks? Which, which, of course, you know, that's what Donald Trump said he wanted. And and what exactly are you doing different than Donald Trump? Because the only thing that I see that's different from the Biden administration than, than Donald Trump when it comes to COVID is just letting teachers unions hold America's kids hostage. Yep. That's it. That's it. That's it. So if you want to have a political discussion uh, about COVID, let's fucking have it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah. But And, and I, I have this conversation with Kemp, which you'll, you'll find, I think, illuminating. But, I mean, ultimately, those of us who have been in D.C. for a while and work with people, very smart people, who have conservative reform agenda in mind. There are the same people on the liberal side that have liberal reform agenda in mind. If they're ever allowed to have unified democratic government, this is what they do, right? When Obama was elected, they were like, okay, we're going to do healthcare reform. Boom. Biden is elected. His signature priority, think about this, wrap your head around this. Mm -hmm. His signature priority is the $2,000 checks. Okay, well, that's interesting. Where do we get the $2,000 checks? We got the $2,000 checks. And look, no matter what you think about the $2,000 checks, the reality of the reason that that is a part of American discourse is because Donald Trump was upset that Senate Republicans recognized the victory of Joe Biden in the first place. $2,000 was never mentioned at any point by any economist, by anyone anywhere, right up until 
Senate Republicans acknowledged the victory of Joe Biden and Donald Trump got pissed and said, I'm not going to sign your bill for 600 bucks. Now I want 2000. They never negotiated it. That's what he wanted. So regardless of what you think about how that became $2,000, consider the fact that Joe Biden's only fucking priority for his entire administration, they're willing to blow up the filibuster, go to reconciliation, completely throw out 100 days worth of political capital in order to implement Donald Trump's plan that he conjured up over Twitter in a temper tantrum. And can I the, say, the, I mean, the, the real four D power of Trump in a tweet to be able to do that. I mean, me personally, I, that is so admirable. Like I am in awe. The dude just like, he was just like, I'm going to tweet this shit out. And the power of his tweet to just Joe Biden is like, oh yeah, we're, we're, we're totally going to steal this. It's incredible, man. It's incredible. And now, and now they're they're going to target Republicans who oppose, um, you know, teachers unions taking America hostage um, after we've already given them tens of billions of dollars to make reopening schools safe. That the CDC says it is safe. Open schools now. But we can't do it until we pass this. And you want to talk about the politics? The Biden people want to talk about the politics of this. Let's have that discussion. Let's go to every suburb in America where schools are closed and let's talk to those voters. Uh, I think they'd be coming back to the Republican Party real quick. Yeah, yeah I mean, no question about it. It's, it's complete nonsense. The other fact that I was reminded of today is that this article that was printed in Politico is, is actually like a carbon copy of the same article that was printed in 2009 about Republicans who oppose the Obama stimulus. It's the same. It's the same game. It's these journals just carrying the water for the Dems. Yeah, I mean, I was look. I was involved. I was in McConnell's office at the time, and we made the decision that we were going to oppose access spending and government takeover of the private sector. And we, we made a full push at it. We only had forty Republican senators at the time. It was like a bad, bad spot for the Republican Party, but we wanted to fight it on principle. We knew that we probably would fail. We wanted to fight it on principle and we did. And the, the only thing that journalists kept saying is, well, you're going to play. You Look, you're going to pay a big price at the polls. You're going to pay a big price. Oh. Well, I mean, I know we have this very important interview uh, with Governor Kemp and I know everyone wants to hear it. And it's, a, it's an important interview. Like I said, there are a lot of questions I want his to answer you know, that I have about that Georgia election. We don't have time to get into this, but, uh, you know, I just want to make sure I say that maybe if, if we ran on, on $2,000 checks, we would have won those Georgia seats. <laughs> oh, come on. But Holmes, we don't have time to get into it. Oh, man. We should he really got you there interview. by doing it right at the end. He we did have it. to get into this interview, folks. The whole <laughs> world is waiting to hear this one. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, we don't ask about Dominion or anything else. <laughs> Uh, either smug, but but honestly, this is a, this is an important interview. It's really important. It probably might be the the most important interview that we've done mm -hmm. on Breathless because it's not about preaching to the choir. It's about real answers about what's in a guy's heart, about what way he governs. Not about the you know the the stereotypes or whatever that you get from media about who this dude is, but what he actually thinks and what he thinks went wrong. And where do you go from here? 
And you're going to get that from Ruthless. Look, we're going to, we, we range the ideological spectrum here. And, um, and we think that it's more important for us to have honest conversations than conversations everybody agrees with. Yeah. And he had the courage to come on knowing, I mean, you gave him the hard questions. This is a great interview. I think we should yeah. just get right into it. Let's do it. I'm now joined by Governor Brian Kemp. Governor, thank you so much for coming on the program. Oh, great to be on with you, Josh. Thank you. Listen, uh, we've got a lot to get to here because I, I think the Georgia economic story, how you've handled COVID, all of this has just sort of been a, a model for the country in a lot of ways. And you took some heat at the time for doing it. So I want to get into that. But I first want to start off with how a lot of our listeners got to know you, which is the election. And you all were at the center of a, a political firestorm in a lot of ways. And, and one thing that I've um, been thinking about, because we've watched a bunch of different states implement different voting procedures based on COVID and how to get through it. Some states, liberal states, have been extremely aggressive in changing how they did that. Georgia, not so aggressive, but got a lot of attention, obviously, in the aftermath. And I'm wondering, when it comes to the expansion of, of mail-in voting, the expansion of early voting, some of the signature match things that came to light, before the election, were you concerned at all about any of that? Well, it's really, that's a good question. And I think probably one of the disappointing things for me is so many people tied so, so many of those changes and other things to me as the governor when in Georgia, you know, we have a, a constitutional officer in the Secretary of State. I was Secretary of State for nine years. I fought for election security to make it easy to vote and hard to cheat. I mean, I'm the guy that sued the Obama Justice Department to make sure that we had a citizenship check before you register to vote in Georgia. I've been fighting Stacey Abrams all the way back, you know, before 2014 on, those, on these issues when nobody really even cared. I mean, it's like I was on an island fighting by myself uh, along with my election lawyers at the time. And now we're at the center of the universe when really it's the Secretary of State that made those decisions or the legislature. So, um, you know, that's been kind of frustrating for me yeah. that, that people don't realize that, you know, a lot of the changes before the election, um, you know, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback now, but I had concerns with those. Uh, I probably wouldn't have done things the same way, but the people of Georgia elected Secretary Raffensperger to, to be the Secretary of State, and he made those decisions, and there's legislators that are upset with some of them. Um, but he, he also, you know, has, has spoken out in regards, and I'll let him speak for himself. But that's one of the things that's been frustrating for me, and, and I really felt like after the November election, uh, I think I was the first person in Georgia, certainly one of the first, to call for a signature audit, because I felt like is a former Secretary of State, that would have been something that would have been really easy to do. You didn't have to do it statewide. You could have done a precinct or one county or, you know, a couple of precincts and a couple of counties just to give people a peace of mind on the absentee process, um, absentee by mail process, which we've had in Georgia for a long time. Whether you like it or not, it was in place for the primary. Nobody said anything about it. Um, the Democrats, quite honestly, did a better job than us working absentees. And, you know, there's a lot of questions, I think, that need to be asked of the state party is why they weren't watching closer on Election Day. 
But that being said, I do think there's things that we need to do, uh, seeing how many people voted absentee, the, de the demand and the volume is, is significantly more than we've ever seen in the past. Mm -hmm. And I think that gives us some reasoning to go into this session, which we're doing now, and consider other ways to make it easy to vote in Georgia, but also hard to cheat. And one of the things that I've uh, championed is a photo ID requirement for absentee ballots by mail, just like we have for in-person. Yeah, well, look, photo ID is a no-brainer. And obviously, uh, a former or current fellow Georgian, Jimmy Carter, was a, a champion of that, which <laughs> you don't get him uh, on the conservative side very often. But, but that was one area, obviously. But, but it, it does raise a good question. I'm glad you're focusing on this because 2020 was a unique election in a lot of ways because of COVID. And it sounds like you're focused on making sure going forward, Georgia doesn't stay the same in terms of implementing all of these changes. You're going to come back and take another look at it, basically, and see if you can implement some things and make it tougher and tougher to cheat. Yeah, and there's a lot of legislators that are working on that. I mean, when, when I ran for Secretary of State, I, I ran on a, a secure, you know, a safe plan, basically, have secure, accessible, fair elections in Georgia. And I think the thing that frustrated a lot of conservatives um, post-November 3rd was, number one, just the, the volume that's out there on absentee, why that was, why we were mailing, or, or why the Secretary of State mailed everybody an absentee ballot application when, right. you know, you can just print one off on the internet. You know, it's very easy to get. It's been that way for a long time, uh, making sure that we have a good verification process in, in regards to that. But also think people were frustrated not only uh, with that process, especially conservatives, but also just there was a lot of people that had a hard time in some counties being able to watch that process. Now, there's also a lot of confusion out there and a lot of things that people have been told that are simply not true, like I could actually order the signature audit or <laughs> I could you know, do all of these things, which, which I just don't have the legal authority to do. And that's one of the things that I made very clear. I mean, I'm a constitutional conservative. I'm gonna follow the law and the constitution. That's bigger than me. It's bigger than any person in our party. Um, and, I, and I don't think we can lose sight of that as, as conservative Republicans, but it shouldn't be hard for people to be able to watch the process of counting absentee ballots. Now we can't allow them to disrupt that process, but we certainly need to watch them to make sure that it's being done correctly. And it's just like going into the election. A lot, of a lot of people don't realize you can actually go watch the logic and accuracy testing of the voting equipment, um, you know, a day or two before the election. You can, you can watch Republicans and Democrats on the state, on the county election board, uh, secure that machine. And after it is secured and the testing's done, uh, the media can watch that, the public can watch it, and then they seal that machine up so it is ready to go on election day. And there's just a lot of people who don't even realize that process exists, yeah. but it does. So I think a, a part of the problem is, is confusion and misinformation, but there's definitely things that we need to fix. I've heard that from people. I want conservatives that are upset to know that I hear you, and we need to work on those things. But we also got to keep in mind the rules going into the November 3rd the election, they were the same for both parties. And, you know, we have to do our part. Uh, I think we got beat on the ground in Georgia. We got beat with the party apparatus. And that's something that we got to change. 
And I think there's great hope for us in doing that because if you look at states like Texas, you know, the opposite happened. The Republicans beat the Democrats on the ground in Texas and, and had an overwhelming victory that day. So I think it gives us a roadmap to continue to have accessible fair elections in Georgia, but also to make sure that they're secure and that it's easy to vote and hard to cheat. Yeah, uh, well said. So I want to get to the economy. Um, one of the challenges that governors across the country have had is obviously balancing the health and safety of, of citizens in their states with the obvious economic ravages that small businesses have experienced by closing down economies. And, and very early on when, you know, it seemed like the, there was a, a real lack of answers, particularly from the, the Fauci's of the world uh, on the national level, uh, you decided you wanted to open your state back up and it was safe to do so. You consulted with uh, folks in the scientific community, how it would pertain to, to Georgia, and you took a ton of heat for it. Yeah. But I think now in the, in the, <laughs> with the benefit of hindsight, looking at the COVID numbers in Georgia and your economic uh, numbers in Georgia, well, that sure seemed like the right decision. Well, Josh, it's been amazing how resilient our citizens are here. I mean, they have heeded the public health guidance. They have, for the most part, done what we've asked. A lot of, you know, a lot of times people let their guard down, especially over the holidays, and we've had our peaks and valleys with COVID. But I just learned early on we had to fight through it. We had to, you know, we were in a two-battle war here. We were in a battle to, you know, stop COVID, stop the spread, get to the point where we have a vaccine where we can go on offense and try to end this pandemic, which is what we're doing. But also at that time, you know, after seeing the country shut down, having parts of our economy shut down in Georgia, we never shut down the whole economy. I think a lot of people don't really realize that. Just specific sectors that we were really worried about aggressive spread in as somebody that's been a small business owner for over 30 years, I've been in the position a lot of Georgians were in at that time where literally you're about to lose everything. You, you are barely able to pay your people that are working for you. You're not playing, paying your vendors or your suppliers and you literally are about to, you know, lose your home or have banks start foreclosing on uh, things and properties that you own. I have been there. You know, my wife and I have agonized over that. I, I've had, whereas a construction guy, I had people that were walking around my job sites that have more money in their pocket than I had in my checkbook. <laughs> and I know what that feels like. And I just felt like we were getting to that point where, you know, you, you have to, when, when you're putting out government rules and regulations and laws, people have to buy into those. If, if we become a society where the public doesn't buy into that, you're going to have you know, just disarray. I mean, people, people are not going to stay in their living room and lose everything that they have. Some of them work decades for. They're not going to stay in their living room or their basement when they cannot feed their family or pay their rent uh, or make their car payment. They're just not going to, they're not going to do that. They're going to start breaking the law. And I felt like we were at that point and that we had to not only protect lives in Georgia, but we had to protect livelihoods. And so we methodically started reopening and taking a lot of heat is an understatement. I mean, <laughs> yeah. people in the national media that were literally, literally writing articles that, you know, 
that I was, you know, doing a death experiment and, and just all these ridiculous things. Um, but I knew it was what we needed to do. And thankfully it worked out good. And we've been keeping our foot on the gas ever since. It was interesting in December nationally, sales tax revenue was down seven tenths of a percent nationwide. Ours was positive. Hmm. I think it was us in Texas are the only two states in December that actually added, um, you know, hospitality, tourism, service industry jobs in our states in December, which shows that, you know, we're fighting through this and our, our revenues have held up. It's incredible what our revenues have done. So as other states right now are talking about furloughs and layoffs and cutting, you know, funding to health and education and public safety and other things, we're not, you know, we're, we're not having any budget cuts this year. We're strategically investing back in education. And uh, obviously there's a lot of federal money for public health right now. Uh, but also, you know, our budget is just like last year, our budget held up a lot better than we thought. And we invested in shovel-ready economic development projects to keep things going in Georgia. We're seeing the fruits of that now, but we gotta, we can't let our guard down. You know, we're still, these new strains are, are certainly concerning. So we got to continue to follow the guidance and we're working very hard to get the vaccine out. How frustrating is it as a, a Republican governor dealing with all of this to see the national media, uh, as you as you mentioned, basically frame and narrate an experience that nobody in Georgia is actually living? And, and, and the thing that popped out to us most significantly, you and DeSantis were basically holding the bag on conservative governance while uh, Governor Cuomo up in New York was making error after error. And yet the, the framing from a national media perspective was, he was the responsible one. Yeah, and look, uh, I haven't criticized um, many governors. I don't, I don't know if you could see me publicly criticize any of them unless some of them had come here and uh, made fun of what we're doing, which, you know, Governor Cuomo did. He came down to Georgia and made a big deal about handing masks out because we didn't have a mask mandate. Well, Dr. Toomey and I felt like it's better not to mandate it. It's better to get people to buy into it. Um, certainly, you know, people have difference of opinions on that, but I heard this morning coming into the Capitol that 75% of national polls, 75% of the people said that they'll continue masking even after we get the vaccines out just to continue to make sure that we, you know, put an end to this pandemic and, uh, or at least get where we've moved past the pandemic stage of it, which I think shows you that people are buying in now to the data, to the science and just trying to do the right thing. But, but I personally think that browbeating people into that is not the way to go. We want people to be part of a, a solution, not part of a problem. And, you know, Cuomo's been like a yo-yo up there, giving everybody, <laughs> you know, giving everybody else guidance on, you know, how they should do their nursing homes and, you know, when they should open restaurants. And he announced he was going to shut restaurants back down, pulling the rug out from everyone, you know, after they've spent all this money, uh, to try to get COVID compliant, if you will. And then, you know, just a weeks later, opens them back up because his budget's in such bad shape. <laughs> and I, I think in these times, people need consistent leaders that are going to be transparent and be truthful with them. And every governor's having to make hard decisions, including him. So, you know, I'm, I'm focused on what I believe we need to do in Georgia. You know, I talk to a lot of fellow governors all the time about what they're doing. 
but I'm not trying to give them advice on how to run their state. And uh, I just think it's kind of interesting when they start doing that, because if you look at us compared to say California, you know, there's been parts of California, they've been locked down the whole time, strict guidelines. They're no better off COVID wise than we are. And their economy has been decimated. I mean, people are starting an underground economy in LA right now, because as I said, they're not going to, they're not just going to sit in their living room and not be able to take care of their children. And uh, I think, you know, especially in the South, you've seen that work very well. And it's not just Georgia. I mean, really, and our states are competing all the time down here, which is what makes it so strong. But states like Florida, Tennessee, you know, South Carolina, Alabama, you know, over into the more of the central part, central southern part, when you got, you know, states like Texas and Arkansas and others, uh, even Mississippi with what Tate Reeves is doing, just a lot of, you know, smart people that they've been there. You know, we've been in a lot of those governors have been in the private sector. They understand. And uh, that's what's, what's driving us. But we're also listening to great public health people that are that are helping us do two things at once, which we can do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things we like to focus on on Ruthless is where we go from here, future of the party, winning elections again. And I know you've got a big one that's coming up here uh, in a couple of years and you're already out uh, working away. I've noticed in some clips, you're working hard already, which is, which is great. We all need to be doing that and focused on what 2022 will bring. Uh, what's, the, what's the status of your campaign and uh, what you thinking here for the next couple of years? Well, you know, that's another thing, Josh, quite honestly, it's been kind of frustrating. I mean, when you look at November 3rd, I mean, you know, I, I worked very hard for the president. I mean, I did everything that they asked me to do, like most Republicans did in Georgia. Um, you know, I hate that he didn't win. He, he that We line up on just about everything, have had obviously had a few disagreements, but, you know, his policies have been great for our state. I've given him a lot of credit. Uh, whether it's the COVID with the economy, deregulation, you know, securing the border, just being tough on Russia, you know, being being strong, bringing manufacturing jobs and other business back to the United States and the state of Georgia. And uh, it, it just, it, it, I mean, I don't like it that he didn't win. And, but when you really look at November 3rd, other Republicans in Georgia, we had a great night. The people that didn't get distracted and stayed focused on talking to Georgians about kitchen table issues, and that's the things that we've worked on over the last two years during my administration with the great, strong Republican leadership in the House and the Senate here. We passed 50 health care bills. You know, Republicans got killed nationally because they wanted to get rid of Obamacare, but they never had a replacement plan. Well, I wasn't going to let that happen in Georgia. We passed 50 health care bills, taking on antiquated bureaucratic regulations in health care, opening up cancer treatment in different parts of our state, passing the Patients First Act where we're getting waivers right now that we got through the Trump administration so we can have uh, a way where people don't have to go to healthcare.gov and try to figure out how to get affordable you know, health insurance. We're going to lower private sector costs by bringing stability to the market. We're going to bring more players to the table, give Georgians more choice. We're going to make health care accessible for thousands and affordable for millions of Georgians over the next year and a half or so. I mean, we did that in Georgia. We're the number one state in the country 
for business. We passed anti-hate crimes legislation. You know, we did all these different things. We, we got rid of ridiculous and too much school testing. We passed the largest teacher pay raise ever in the history of the state. And the Republicans that ran on those issues on November 3rd, there, were, there was a lot of people, Josh, that thought we would lose the House of Representatives here, that we would lose, you know, 12, 13 seats, and we'd have a Democratic speaker right now. We lost two seats. We, well, we lost three races in the House, but we beat the minority leader in the House. Unbelievably. So a great night. The Senate, we were supposed to lose three to four, maybe six seats. We didn't lose any. We lost one, and then we beat one of their incumbents. So on a night when we lost the presidential race in Georgia, our legislature did very well. We had a public service commission candidate that ran statewide with a Democrat and a Libertarian in that race that won without a runoff. And then in the runoff, we lose the two U.S. Senate races, but the down-ballot Republican that was in that runoff, he yeah. wins that race. So the generic ballot here is not as bad as people think. But we got to get out and work, and we cannot get distracted, which is what happened in the runoff. We got to stay focused on the issues that matter to Georgians, having a good job, being able to get a good education, making sure that those that are in vulnerable communities and at risk and haven't had the opportunities that someone like I have had has access to learn a skill, learn a trade. I mean, people are paying truck drivers and welders $80,000, $90,000 a year with good benefits in Georgia. So those are the things we've got to stay focused on. I believe if we do that, we're going to have a successful re-election campaign I, I know, for one, I'm looking forward to running on my record and, and reminding people of all of those things and hopefully moving past the election and getting focused on the future. I think, you know, we, we have to do the, the post-election autopsy and say, hey, we got to do uh, like Republicans in Texas did. We got to get to work on the ground game. But we also know that there's some good things that came out of this cycle and it should teach us a, a lesson in the future that we cannot get distracted. We got to continue to talk to Georgians about the things that matter. Are you concerned at all about um, the number of, of conservatives in the runoff, particularly in North Georgia, that were dispirited by what they felt like was a stolen election and ultimately didn't show up for that runoff that may have made the, the difference? Do, do you think that there is has to be a more fulsome effort over the next couple of years to regain confidence with these people and, and the voting procedures in Georgia? Well, no doubt about it. I'm looking forward to, and I've already started having those conversations with, with some people that just quite honestly are, are misinformed. They didn't really know, um, you know, my position per se. A uh, lot of frustration out there. I hear that. We're going to work on that. But also there was a lot of people that were distracted, Josh. They, yeah. they didn't, didn't vote. They just didn't want to engage. And then, you know, we also, I think there was a lot of people that leaked on us in the primary, the white educated suburban voter. Um, they, they did not, if they did turn back out, they, they didn't vote for us in that election. Yeah. And where, whereas in November that, that they did. And that's, that's where we got to really stay focused and, and not get distracted. People were more concerned with having a, a special session than they were withholding the United States Senate. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, that's, that's absolutely right. I've got three important questions for you, but before I get to that governor, I gotta, I gotta wonder how does it, how does a guy figure out a, a way to get to Augusta? 
<laughs> directions to Augusta. You know, getting in the national, that might be a, a different story. They don't even care if the governor calls down there. <laughs> That's, so that was my question. Can you yeah. go play? Oh, no, no. I would – well, I'm not a, I'm not much of a golfer anymore. I'm a, I'm a big uh, sportsman, but I like to hunt and fish. Okay. And okay. I don't have time to play golf anymore. But if I got invited, <laughs> I, would, I would go uh, to the range a couple times and be ready to go. My life's ambition is to meet somebody who can get me in there. So you <laughs> let me know. <laughs> I will. So three important questions all of our, our listeners look forward to. The first thing, Governor Kemp, your last meal on earth, what would it be? Oh, man. I, I got a lot of good ideas for that. You know, I'm thinking pizza, Mexican, but I guess being uh, uh, the governor of Georgia, probably be best say fried quail, cheese grits, and, and coleslaw, man. <laughs> There you go. There you go. That's that's very demographically important to to hit these last meal recommendations. Uh, next question, and I think I probably know it because of your background. But if you weren't into politics, what would you do, be doing with yourself? Oh, definitely would just go back to work. You know, one of the good things about me when I ran for governor, I, I had you know I've had a great success in the private sector. I've had up and downs, but. Uh, thankfully, we've been able to fight through that. And, um, you know, I, the one thing is I, I don't, you know, need to be governor for a job and I'm not using this to get another job coming out. I think, you know, I could uh, I could go back to Athens and just resume my business activities, be a little more engaged than I am now and look for new opportunities. And, you know, I like working. I've done that, you know, pretty much my whole adult life. And, um I'd look forward to that and will at some point. I just wanted to be after the next term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple more years down the road for sure. Uh, last question uh, What motiva motivates you more, Governor? Is it the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat? Uh, I think definitely the agony of defeat. <laughs> As a Georgia Bulldogs fan, you know, watching the Auburn game where the guy should have intercepted, it bounces off his helmet. The receiver catches it, runs it in. We lose that game. Sitting at the national championship game against Alabama, that long pass coming in the end zone when they beat us after yeah. a, a sack. My daughter and I, we were kind of split up in that game, and my daughter and I were sitting there. I felt like I could have caught that pass. It was <laughs> right at me. I'm sitting in the end zone, and I mean – before it even got to its peak, I went. I saw that receiver break free. We're both sitting there. I was like, oh, no, this is not happening. Yeah. And it, that thing, and I'm just like, it, it's the – it was the agony. You know, we went from the thrill of victory to the agony of defeat. So, definitely the agony of defeat is driving me more. Yeah, that, that ball hung up there, which felt oh. like forever. <laughs> Yeah, that was a great, great game, though. Man, alive, it sure was. Well, listen, Governor, what's your what's your website so our listeners can find what you're up to? Yeah, uh, KempforGovernor.com. Obviously, you can just Google Georgia Governor's Office. We right now have more information coming out of the official page in regards to COVID and the economy and our legislative session. But uh, certainly, KempforGovernor.com. Yes. All right. That's excellent. Governor Kemp, I appreciate your time on Ruthless today. You go out and uh, have a good one and good luck in your reelection. Thanks, Josh. So there it is. Yeah, that's well, good. That's uh, good. So it was a secretary of state all along. 
I yeah, told everyone. I told everybody. I told everyone it was that guy. He was pretty explicit about where the lines of authority lie within because every state's different, you know. I mean, we we've dealt in the states that I was involved in in 2020. Um, there was a mixture. Some people that had secretaries of state that had a lot of power, others with governors, um, and it just ranges. And you know, I think from Governor Kemp's point of view, there were a lot of things he was uncomfortable with that ultimately got uh, implemented. And, you know, after the fact, it's really easy to talk about, um, which is why I led with the question about what did you do before the, before the election? Um, but I think ultimately, look, this is, a guy, this is a guy who was put in the worst possible situation ever. And, um, and this was his story. And he ran right at it. Like, that's the thing that impressed me, honestly, is the guy was very, very candid about this stuff, which isn't, you know, something you always get in politics. So I respect him coming on and, and, and doing it. I really do. Yep. Yep. I do too. And here's the thing we've got, you guys will not believe who we have lined up. Yeah. We got some, we got some monster ones. We have some monster interviews lined up, uh, to the extent that you, uh, are, are wondering about the ideological proclivities of all of our various get just wait till you see what we have. Yeah. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to spoil it and I'm not going to spoil it, but I think uh, part of it is the, the support we've gotten, the size of this listener base that keeps growing. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of like the bigger, the bigger we get, the bigger fish we catch. So and you notice smug, the, the, the thing they can't really ignore us anymore. You know, yeah, I'm loving that. Knows? Are, are like starting to tweet out our stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's that's big time. We're, we're, we, we have arrived, folks. You yeah. know, we are all being heard now. That's right. So we've got, you know, musicals and everything else. We're a variety program. Variety program. <laughs> Sign us out of here, Smug. So until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Thursday. Stay ruthless.